This episode addresses topics about sexual health following cancer treatment and is intended for mature listeners. Welcome to Your Stories Podcast, where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm your host, Brenda Brody, and I am honored and delighted to welcome my fellow co-host, Dr. Dizon, to the podcast today. Dr. Dizon is an oncologist who specializes in care for and research of women's cancer and issues related to survivorship particularly as they relate to sexual health after cancer for both men and women. His Your Stories episodes begin airing next month. We are thrilled that the doctor is in the house on Your Stories podcast. Welcome, Don. And I'm just very, very happy to finally meet you, Brenda. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Will you share a little bit about your journey? What led you to becoming an oncologist and then specializing in women's care? Sure. In medical school during my clinical years in third year, one of the first patients I took care of was an older gentleman with lymphoma. And mm. his entire family was uh, came in with him and they stayed by his bedside. I just got to know him and heard his story about where he grew up. It was just so remarkable to spend that much time with this gentleman who gave me his time, even as he was so sick with lymphoma. And it was just an exceptional bonding experience. And then one day I came into the hospital and before I could get to the floors, the resident who was supervising me stopped me in the hallways to tell me that he had died overnight. I never got to speak to this family again, but mostly I just thought there's just got to be better. The unfairness of oncology 20 years ago was unbearable. And I kind of thought I want to be a part of doing something better. It's interesting hearing the doctor perspective on this, because as a patient, I've been around a lot of different diseases, but oncology, you really do become as a patient so connected to your oncologist because you are spending so much time, you mm-hmm. you get to know them and they really get to know you. So you specialize in both? Yes. Breast yes. cancer and ovarian and, and all yeah. the other female below the belt cancers too. I've never met yeah. anyone that did both. So I yeah. mean, as a patient, you know, I, I, I didn't realize that one might do both. Yeah. And, you know, as a breast cancer survivor, one of the biggest fears I have, which they keep telling me not to worry about is with all the post-cancer meds, could I potentially get some other cancer, whether it's ovarian, et cetera? Well, I think, you know, there is always that worry that's associated with, will my cancer come back? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, the companion worry, will I get something else? And, you know, as much as we can rely on the science, right, to tell us that unless you have a mutation in a specific gene, even if you had breast cancer, you're not an increase of increased risk of ovarian cancer. No one will ever know what it's like to walk in your shoes and deal with the trauma of having that diagnosis in the first place. And, right. and always wondering if it happened once, can it happen again? You know, I think part of what 
you know, draws me towards survivorship, for example, is this notion that our relationship, the relationships we have goes beyond just therapy. You know, it is sort of walking them towards a new reality, this new normalcy that we speak of, and making that just more tolerable. And hopefully, you'll see there is light even with all the shades of gray that you just walked through. Yeah, so I don't think anyone can ever tell you, don't worry about that. It will never happen. What I can say as an oncologist is, you know, we're watching you closely. Mm -hmm. And if something happens, we will handle it when it happens. Here's a little secret about oncologists. We tell. (laughs) We fall back on scientific speak when we're not very comfortable, right? Or when the news isn't very good. And that's when we as patients melt down because we're walking in. I was positive, but, you know, my girlfriend called me and said, he said, I'm triple negative. What what the heck is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's more easy to say you have stage three disease, but don't worry about it, rather than say the cancer is advanced, right? Exactly. You know, it's a grade three tumor. It's triple negative. That's it. But no one, you know, explaining that, it's not the greatest news. So we oftentimes will oftentimes, you know, filter back towards scientific speech. And it's not meant to confuse things uh, because we're still giving the information, but it does require interpretation. I think one of the things that I'm passionate about doing is telling people before they're done with treatment now, and I've learned to do this because I've listened to people just like you who've told me I'm suffering is I prepare them for the end of therapy that you might think you should want to celebrate when that last dose of chemotherapy is delivered, when that last radiation therapy is delivered, when you don't need to come back every month and your next visit is three months. You think you're going to throw a party, but if you find yourself in despair or if you find yourself very sad, emotional, or anxious, there's a name for that and it's called the fear of recurrence and it's real and it can last for the better part of a year. And so, you know, putting these expectations up front, people have now told me, thank God you said that because I now knew to expect it. But for people who I didn't get the chance to say that to, the one thing I don't do is trying to turn it into something positive. That whole notion of toxic positivity Right. They're mm-hmm. sort of like, I know you feel like a cancer is going to come back, but look at all the flowers out there. <laughs> exactly. No, you, you, got, know? you have to meet the patient where they are. Yes, absolutely. We do know there's great data now that accessing psychological support, learning how to cognitively understand that your triggers, you know, all of these can be very helpful. And just sometimes I will tell folks, you know, it's like this scream in your ear that you can't get rid of, but that voice does go quiet. It gets quieter as the time passes. Never goes away completely, but you'll, you'll learn to manage that. But we can help you do that. I'm fascinated to learn your focus on sexual health. So right. can you share a little bit about how you help patients through the sexual side effects? Sure. You you know, what's so interesting, anyone that's come to see me is so embarrassed 
by mm-hmm. even having to come see a doctor about this. Can you imagine? It's something so inherently human that before you had cancer, you didn't even have to think about most people. It was like, you know, I was in the mood and then it happened and this was great and we just clicked and and imagine it's all thrown off because of cancer, because of the chemotherapy, because of the extended hormonal therapies that one goes through. People are always so confused about what's just happened because as every part of their life sort of, you know, stumbles towards a new normal, this one part can be really left behind and it can create such bother. And it's the bother that makes it a problem. And when that's a problem, that's when we need to to need to address it. So really the biggest way that I think I can help people is providing clarity as to what's happened to them. Let them know that this is exceptionally common. The statistics, it's as high as 50 to 90% of people treated for cancer have sexual complications. We can work through it to try to find a place to start to unpack what's just happened, right? But really, it's the validation that's so important. So true. Oh my gosh. I'm listening to you going, I feel like I'm in therapy. This is amazing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I'm single. And so I totally, you know, we think about things differently when we're single. So yes, exactly. Well, you know, I'll tell you that the aha moment for a couple, right, is when I'm talking through, this is why your partner who had the breast cancer doesn't want to have sex because it hurts or she's having all these symptoms. But desire can be satisfied in very different ways for women that has nothing to do with it, you know sexual activity in That's correct fact, if you just did the dishes she'd be very <laughs> satisfied and probably want you more <laughs> because non or just a hug right or just a hug oh it's like oh my gosh you're washing my car that is so hot you know there's truth <laughs> to that we laugh but there's truth to that because Intercourse and intimacy are separate experiences for women, but for men, it's the same. It's right. the same. It's so tied right. together. So unpacking that is a lot of what I do. And then, you know, understanding that there are therapies that have been looked at in clinical trials that have an evidence base to it. Uh, That's what I was about to ask you because I've heard the Mona Lisa for women who have gone through Mm -hmm. menopause is very, very effective. Any thoughts on that? So for women who have vaginal dryness or experience the effects of menopause, there is a vaginal laser therapeutic approach. It's three treatments with a laser that can help increase collagen and restore moisture and sort of rejuvenate the vaginal vault. It's called Mona Lisa, but it's really it's vaginal laser therapy. It has recently come with a black box warning on the FDA because it can cause scarring and it can cause burns into the Interesting. vaginal vault. But the data in people who've had breast cancer or who are on hormonal blockade, for example, there's not great data to say it works and how, if it does work, how well it works or how long it works because we've never had the, the golden, you know, experience of a clinical trial where you had vaginal laser therapy versus 
you know, kind of sham treatment just to really document this. Interesting. Um, yeah. So the data, data to support its use for people treated for breast cancer or for pelvic radiation even, it's just not there. Do you guide them also with lubricants that, you know, mm-hmm. to stay away from lubricants that have, you know, I was hormonal, hormone positive. Mm-hmm. So do you want to share a little about that? Sure. Do you talk about that in your guidance? Oh, 1000%. So I actually try to unpack that. It's like, okay, well, let's think of your pelvis in terms of keeping her healthy. And then let's think of the things we can do to have, you know, to let her have fun. They're totally separate things. So moisturizers are about health. Lubricants are about fun, but they're not the same thing. You know, and yes, you know, I go through the preparations that have been explored, the polycarbophilic moisturizers versus the um, parabens-free formulations that are available. I go through, you know, the silicone-based lubricants versus the water-based lubricants. And, you know, for everybody, regard, regardless of what they went through, it's the same advice. Stay away from perfumes or anything that's, you know, plays with temperature because those, those things shouldn't be used. I'm really glad to hear because no one guided me in that area. People should know that. One of the big things for breast cancer, and I know you treat, you know, all women's cancers, but that first time, whether mm-hmm. you're married or not married, if uh-huh. the first time that you have sex with a partner after you've had a double mastectomy, it yeah. is so emotional. And I always tell women that they have to feel good about themselves. And I was intimidated. But I think for women, we have to get over that ourselves, right? About the change because we're so defined by our breasts and our nipples. And oh, when yeah. you don't have any anymore. There's this concept that my colleague, Jennifer Goss, who's actually here in Providence with me, she coined the term breast-specific sensuality. And, you know, the, that is a term because 90% of women, their breasts are a huge erogenous zone. When you get through treatment for breast cancer, especially when you get through treatment with a mastectomy, whether or not you had the best reconstruction or no reconstruction, if you had a lumpectomy and radiation, you lose that. You lose that sensuality of the breasts. It is very common where women who had reconstruction, it is not uncommon for them to come see me. And I ask them, tell me what your routine is like. And, you know, there's these, these rules in place, but they're not explained. You know, they can't explain it to themselves and they can't explain it to their partner, which is such a missed moment in bringing two people together. So it, it really is a place where, you know, the normalization, the validation, and then ex- the explanation helps both people understand you're reacting to the changes of your body. And no matter how much your partner says, you look beautiful. The only voice you're hearing is the one that's seeing you in that mirror, you know, and you need to come to a point where you're comfortable with your body. And do you feel the same way with for men that have erectile dysfunction? What is the guidance that you give them about talking to a female? You know what's so interesting about men is that they're more, the men who have actually come to see me have seen me because they've been told it's all in their head. So usually the steps are you check their testosterone levels, 
testosterone are normal, it's all in your head. And they're kind of blown off, you know. And, you know, I, I actually do go in and just say, you know, it's, we, there's this other sexual health model that I, that I personally worked on with my colleague Ann Katz. And it's just explaining the importance of the partner in male sexual health and the importance of comorbidities and medications and then how it, you know, it influences that, you know, that scale between confidence and anxiety, right, on whether or not you'll be able to perform. So it's really rewiring how men think about sex. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It's, it's, it's a really, you know, the thing is, the fact that I get to spend an hour with a couple as an oncologist, not talking about cancer, is just such an incredible opportunity. That's amazing. That's an interesting thought, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. You feel like you're adding value in a different way. Something about totally pleasure. Way. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And for me, are I there many say, of you? Um, are there many of you around the country? So folks well, that are listening that aren't near you in Rhode Island, where do they go? Well, so there are sexual health clinics within cancer centers where there's more and more being set up. There are not many medical oncologists who do this work. There are some. I actually teach something called the Sexual Health First Responders course each year. Right? Love it. I you know, love it. It's really, you know, I have mammogram technologists and social workers and nurses and they're the access point because at some point every person at every center needs to hear sometimes this can affect you sexually and i'm wondering whether or not that's happening those are such powerful words because it tells someone don't suffer silently you know, I think this is uh, this is something very interesting because I know for the cancer center that I went to, they mm-hmm. didn't really talk eight years ago about lymphedema or sexual health or yeah. a lot of things about the new normal. Now I heard they do. They they have a whole package that they give you, and they immediately bring in a lymphedema uh, therapist and and uh, you know a person to design a sleeve for you and all these things early would be nice yeah. if you had the you know Dr. D 101 that yeah. um, focused on sexual health that was part of the package right or at least you know what I would love our oncologists do is to say you know you ask about such private things in the course of a clinical visit you know it's like diarrhea are you having diarrhea you know what color is it exactly all sorts of stuff you really can't ask you know sometimes people have trouble with intercourse is that happening you know because people are afraid you're opening like this pandora's box and it's like what am i i don't know what you're going to tell me and i'd prefer not to hear it it's like you know people just want to know that there's someone who can help and help the patient and their partner it's a tough journey, but there mm-hmm. is light for so many. Thank God for all the research that's being done. More people are surviving cancer. I mean, this was so therapeutic for me listening mm-hmm. to you, oh, you good. know, because I, I haven't had, had doctors talk to me about this. I've kind of figured it out myself talking to my girlfriends, but you're really involved and passionate about promoting equitable cancer care for patients in the LGBTQ plus community. Can you share a little bit about your work in that area? I was asked by the partnership to reduce cancer in Rhode Island to speak on sexual and gender minorities and cancer care. It was something that was important to me 
because I am a gay man and I'm married with three kids. So accessing medical care has always been this very tricky dance, even for someone like me, because, you know, the really, forms, the forms are always, you know, what's the mom's name and what's the father's name. So mm. every time you're meeting a new doctor, you're disclosing, right? And, sure. I, you know, I have no trouble, no problem disclosing it. But then you imagine seeing a new doctor for something as serious and you're wondering whether your identity is going to influence how they treat you. And I think that's the difficulty. And that led me to looking at the data, you know, these misconceptions about, oh, lesbians aren't at risk for HPV. What? Because they don't sleep with men. Right. Really? There are disparities in cancer screening and prevention among the LGBTQ community. That's heartbreaking to hear that that's still happening. But I mean, I know I have to be a realist, but it's just heartbreaking. Part of it is there's also the ideas of sensitivity. You walk into a treatment area or a clinic and there are posters on the walls and, you know, we're all about equity, right? And we want to see ourselves represented in the clinics that we attend. There's so much energy dedicated to this so this mother came up to me and said you know i'm not seeing myself in the breast feeding literature because she had a mastectomy and had one working breast but all of the literature in our cancer center had women who didn't have breast cancer who were breastfeeding the same thing was said to me recently by uh, a lesbian patient of mine which was why is it all of your breast cancer literature, it's a heterosexual couple? Then you let, it led me to realize that we aren't actually collecting sexual and gender status, sexual orientation, and gender identity on a routine way. So Interesting. Yeah, this has become one of the projects. What about the trans? In. What about oh, the yeah. trans community? I mean, yeah. that must be really hard for the trans community, finding doctors, finding oncologists that can help them, especially if they've had sex change operations. Right. Well, so one of the earliest experiences I had was seeing a new patient with ovarian cancer and walking into a room and seeing two people going towards the woman and say, oh, hey, I'm Dr. Dizon. Um, you know, well, you know, welcome to the clinic and let's talk about your cancer. And she stopped me and said, I'm not the patient. Ooh. And she pointed to her husband. And he said, I'm the one with ovarian cancer. Wow. How yeah. did that make you feel? I felt so ashamed, actually. I, that I, made I mean, here you're part of that community. Completely. And you, know? you just didn't know. It was, a, it, now, was a, it, it was just a mistake. It was a mistake. The question that comes up, which I'm, I'm bringing to you, does cancer really have a gender? Because it doesn't. What makes me concerned is this person disclosed that he was the one with ovarian cancer. And I was, you know, after that pass, I apologized profusely. And we went on, went ahead and we went through treatment. And it, was, it was fine, totally fine. But imagine if my reaction was anything less than that. It's like shock, 
what are you talking about, anger, this person would be dealing with all those complex emotions about rejection and, you know, intolerance. And how does that influence their subsequent care? And how does that influence their outcomes? And for the trans community, right, this person developed ovarian cancer on testosterone, you know, and we wrote up the case and the association between gender affirming hormone therapy and ovarian cancer has not been established at all. But at the time, I recommended he not go back on testosterone. And then mm-hmm. six months later, he came to see me just so devastated because his he was losing his facial hair. Aww. You know, and said, I cannot, I cannot live like this. And he went back on testosterone. But imagine the reaction and the discrimination that would have subsequently happened if I said, you do that, I'm firing you. I refuse to see you because you're, you're taking on risk that I, I feel is unreasonable. Right. You know, they're, they're just, this could have played out in so many different ways. And so the advocacy part is what I've now found myself doing. And it's work that I think needs to happen. And I think if we want to really fully embrace equity, it's something we need to do as a specialty. And is there currently an advocacy organization that's formed in this area for those that Mm -hmm. might be looking for support and help in finding oncologists that could help treat them if they are part of this community? Yeah. Liz Margolis helped found the LGBT Cancer Network, which which is a great organization. Fortunately, you know, ASCO has such a stake in health equity and diversity that they also have a task force looking at these issues of sexual and gender minority cancer care. It's important stuff. I'm really proud to be involved in it. I love hearing that there's people focused on helping others in unique ways, especially the underserved communities. And here's a perfect example. Wow, you are incredible. Well, I think I'm adopting a very long view of where we were and where we've come and where I hope where we're going to be going. And the movement towards looking at someone and their cancer as individual as they are and coming up with a treatment plan that's specific to that person rather than, you know, an all people get treated the same way approach is a huge motivation. And even if we cannot cure this disease, and I hope we can, taking the fear of death from anyone facing this diagnosis is motivation as well. Well, I have to say that was an incredible way to end this (laughs) session. As a patient hearing that you're going to focus on my diagnosis and how to help me through it, whether I live or you extend my life Mm -hmm. is just the biggest blessing a patient could ever imagine. I thank you so much for your time and enjoy taking over as host. Well, I am just so honored to have done this with you. And it was so, so great chatting with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Dizon, for joining us today on the podcast. And I'm excited for your episodes to come. Hearing the experiences of others can help people cope with the challenges that cancer brings. 
Help others find their inspiring stories by leaving a review of our podcast and subscribe today, please, to iTunes and Google Play to hear every new episode. Thanks for listening to Your Stories, Conquering Cancer. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.